you're tuned to the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Healthcare Association of Hawaii just released its report about ongoing staff shortages in our hospitals and skilled nursing facilities. It's about to expand its training programs and will roll out a, gl- a glide path, which allows workers to maintain their jobs while obtaining more credentials. The association says any long-term solutions to reduce the 600 traveling nurses now on the job requires closer cooperation between both the public and private sector. The conversation Stephanie Hahn had a chance to speak to Bridget Lai, manager of clinical education for Hawaii Pacific Health, to learn more about one of the programs using high-tech medical mannequins to train our local nurses. So this is pretty exciting. Does this mean that there's going to be all different kinds of mannequins for uh, various diseases or medical procedures? So we actually, we have um, uh, over a dozen mannequins across the system of varying levels of um, fidelity. So she's got a lot of bells and whistles. She talks and blinks and can have a seizure. We have low fidelity mannequins who have a, he doesn't have the same level of complexity as far as bells and wires and things like that. But he simulates actually a different scenario. That's a 25-week infant who's about a half pound. And so this we would utilize to train our NICU nurses. Um, so in these different mannequins, they all have different functionality. So this mannequin, for example, there's no electrical things inside of him, but we are able to simulate what they would see at the bedside if this was a real scenario. In her case, she actually we can deliver electricity with to her with a defibrillator, just like we would in a cardiac arrest. She can bleed. Um, we have a mannequin who can have a stroke, who sweats, who cries. They talk. Uh, we have pediatric mannequins, newborn mannequins, toddler mannequins to simulate all those different stages of life for our students and nurses. I have to admit, it's also a little strange. It is. It can be. It can be. Working with plastic people um, can be a little bit unusual. Um, I started playing with dolls of this nature uh, back in 2008, and sometimes I even get caught off guard when I come around the corner and see them. Um, So it can be a little bit unusual, but it really, we're really grateful for this chance to provide students and clinicians a chance to learn in a safe environment where they can make mistakes, we can correct them, and that way they're prepared when it happens in life. So how long has Victoria been alive and used? So we've had Victoria for several years. She even had a predecessor, Noel. So we've actually been using a childbirth mannequin since the mid-2000s. Um, so we've used this type of training for a long time. Much like our iPhones, they get fancier each time. Um, so they, they evolve a little bit um, with each time. But we've had simulations as a part of our standardized training since 2009. And the mannequins are part of the Perinatal Academy, a specialty education program. Nursing students like Shawnee Baker and Brookie are getting hands-on training. Oh, it has been so very helpful because this mannequin can do many different scenarios. And so we've learned in didactic all the different possibilities of what could happen and what we could do. And, you know, these are things that I didn't really get in school because obstetrics is very limited, touched upon in our time because it's a specialty. So everything that I know and I have learned has been pretty much in the uh, perinatal academy. So it's been great. Great. Thank you. And can you tell me a little bit about the challenges between a real life delivery, you know, comparing it with the mannequin? So, of course, the difficulty is she's not a live person. So sometimes people will be a little standoffish and um, not be hands-on. But we have to remember we're simulating a real-life situation. So we do want to get hands-on, treat her like a real person, and definitely so that we can do what we do in this scenario in real life. Uh, Brooke, so tell me a little bit about your experience with Victoria. Yeah, so I'm here acting more in a role of a neonatal intensive care nurse. And so my role is really actually supporting baby, um, making sure that they can breathe all right and that they're um, just functioning as a normal baby would in the delivery. And so that's kind of my role here. And then in the the neonatal intensive care unit, it's a very similar role where I support newborns and just ensure that they aren't having any respiratory problems or if they came a little earlier that we're providing the care that they need. Hilton Rathel is the president and CEO of the Healthcare Association. He says while we're expanding nursing programs, hospitalizations are at an all-time high. It's not only about COVID, it's about an aging population. 
Today we have a new record census in this state. Today we have 2,554 patients in our hospitals across the state, which is higher than at any point during the pandemic. So of those 2,554 patients, only 65 are COVID, so it's not COVID. We do have some RSV cases, but RSV is not overwhelming our hospitals. What we have learned from our data is that we have a new normal in Hawaii. And as our population is aging, and part of it is the impact of the pandemic, but our case mix index, which is the measure of severity, that has been increasing over the years since 2017. That is pushing up our length of stay. And the case mix index and the length of stay, which are both increasing, is pushing up our daily census. So what we have again is a new normal. Just to give you some background, in 2019, we averaged 1,970 patients a day in our hospitals, just under 2,000. In 2020, we had about the same number. In 2021, we had 2000, an average of 2,184, almost 2,200 patients in our hospitals. For the first 10 months of this year, we've had over 2,300 patients in our hospitals. And in the last seven days, we've had five days over 2,500 patients. So again, what we're seeing is a new normal where we have many more patients on any given day in our hospitals than what we're experiencing pre-pandemic. The pandemic is a factor in driving up that census, but it is the aging of the population and it is increasing case mix adjustment or severity of illness that is driving up the census. And right now on any given day, we have approximately 600 traveling nurses in the state of Hawaii. And that will continue until all of these programs kick in. Now, we have a number of cohorts that are taking place right now. And so that is gonna help, but we need a lot more cohorts, which, which means we need a lot more students. One of the questions is, are there even enough students in the, in the, in the state for, for our need? And we're still doing that analysis. When you're talking about the governor, for example, and the state legislature just recently approved funding to expand nursing faculty at UH. That is going to help. We're working with President Lasner and his team in the community colleges to increase funding for even more positions. And there is going to be in the budget for 2023, the, the University of Hawaii is adding about approximately $6 million into their budget to expand even further the nursing faculty. So we need even more faculty than what was funded in the funds that were just released. So until we can get our own staff growing and trained, we're gonna to continue to need the travelers because we, we just don't have enough. We're not staffed in Hawaii for 2,500 patients a day. So it's, a, it's an incredible challenge for our, for our hospitals. Rachel adds that many nurses are leaving the state because of the high cost of living and lack of affordable housing. Some of them are being recruited to the mainland. There are Oregon, for example, some of the hospitals in Oregon, they are offering signing bonuses to brand new graduates and the cost of living is lower. So some nurses make the decision, even though they're trained here and even though there's a job here waiting for them, they're still relocating to the mainland and we're working to figure out how to try and address that. But the, just to reiterate, we have vacancies in our hospitals and healthcare organizations, long-term care facilities, home health agencies, other organizations, hospices, for every nurse that is graduating from our program here in the state of Hawaii. There is a huge amount of competition and currently Hawaii pays the second highest salaries in the nation, second only to California. Now the challenge, that we know is the cost of living here in Hawaii. The price of gas, the price of electricity, the price of housing. So when you factor in the cost of living, it really is a challenge to make us competitive. So that is why we're very excited about the ability to work with the governor-elect, the lieutenant governor, the legislature, and the mayors to address some of those fundamental issues. We need a lot more affordable housing, for example, so that People who are here, including our nurses, but people in other professions as well, have housing. 
when we interview people, we talk to, talk to people who are graduating from our healthcare programs or we're trying to recruit, one of the biggest reasons for people either leaving the state or not wanting to come to Hawaii is the cost of housing. So that is, we're already having discussions with the governor-elect and his team and the mayors and there's developers, there's a lot of people who are interested in solving this problem, but we do have to address that housing problem. We can't change the price of a gallon of gas, for example. That's set at an international level. But the things we can change, for example, or have an impact on, like housing, we can do that. That was Hilton Rathel, CEO of the Hawaii Healthcare Association, talking about the reasons behind our state's staffing shortage. He says while outreach efforts aim to get local high schoolers into entry-level work programs, our newly elected leaders in private interest must do more to address the housing crisis. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, o'ahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. It's King David Kalakaua's birthday, and for today's Backyard Quiz, we look at a royal and historic Kona home that he redecorated and used as a summer home. Huli'e'e Palace on Ali'i Drive was originally built of lava rock in 1838. It was built on Kalakae, a former residence of King Kamehameha. It had been a royal residence for years. Ownership of the palace would move from one royal to another, including Queen Kapi'olani and Prince Kuhio. But by 1924, it had been in disrepair, and the territorial legislature purchased it. It was then leased to the Daughters of Hawaii, who now run it as a museum. Today, it showcases Victorian artifacts from the era of King Kalakaua and Queen Kapi'olani, uh, featuring beautiful koa wood furniture, portraits, kapa, featherwork, uh, you know, all these artifacts from Hawaii's royal past. No one lives there today, but we would like to know what name Kalakaua called a palace when he resided there. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HPR. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NairitHawaii.com. Congressman elect. Jill Takuda goes to Washington. That is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Nick Ruby on the line today. Good morning. Hi, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so you got a chance to chat with her while she was there in D.C. for her orientation. That's right. I met with um, Representative-elect Jill Takuda uh, at the State capital, or sorry, excuse me, the nation's capital. Um, <laughs> yesterday, uh, she was, of course, wearing her lei uh, for, uh, because she was taking part in the freshman photo opportunity um, that they did out in front of the Capitol. Uh, we actually posted a selfie of her out there, but. Uh, She is in town, along with dozens of other new members of Congress, basically trying to get up to speed on uh, what it actually takes to be an elected representative here in the nation's capital. Um, Part of that is just, uh, in in some respects, just learning where you're going, uh, learning how to actually cast your vote, whether it's a yes or a no. There are logistics involved with that. Um, And those... Uh, For example, when uh, I was meeting with her, uh, there was uh, an uh, 
a, a uh, presentation about how to find and select a chief of staff. Now, of course, uh, Takuda has already sort of gotten a head start on that. Uh, she's already hired her chief of staff, but that's because uh, in large part, we kind of had uh, an assumption that she was going to be our representative after winning the Democratic primary. Yeah, and, uh, you know, there are a, a number of our, our more senior uh, lawmakers there who can give her some tips. Uh, but, yeah, once you're there, I'm sure it's just kind of a real eye-opener. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a whirlwind. I mean, especially for somebody coming from Hawaii. Um, uh, Takuda is a former state senator uh, where she served as uh, a, a as a member of the majority uh, within the Democratic Party, and now she's coming in to a Washington that is going to be divided in a lot of ways. Uh, the House is expected to be in uh, GOP control. The Senate is going to be in Democratic control. And for the first time in her career, she's going to have to figure out how to navigate um, what it's like to be a member of the minority. Um, especially when there's a lot of turmoil and division within the Republican Party already, um, especially with uh, such a slim majority that's expected uh, within the House. Well, I know when she was in our studios before the general, you know, she was talking about the committees that she was eyeing, and so we'll see where she ends up. Yeah, I mean, she's looking at trying to get a spot in education and labor, um, or on agriculture. Uh, those are committees that uh, she uh, has really been um, aiming for. But she's also, you know, said that she would serve on armed services, which many other members of Hawaii's federal delegation have served on in the past, including uh, Kai Kahele, who she will be replacing, um, and Tulsi Gabbard, as well as Neil Abercrombie and Colleen Hanabusa before them. Yeah, so uh, it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, who she uh, uh, gets to know better, you know, at, at, during this time, since there are a lot of newbies there uh, in Congress. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that a lot of these uh, lawmakers are doing, or future lawmakers are doing, is they are starting to forge and build relationships with other uh, incoming members of Congress. And I think that uh, can the foundation for actually getting work done in the future, uh, particularly, uh, you know, if you haven't worked across the aisle before or don't have a lot of experience doing that, this might be your opportunity to maybe meet somebody who could meet you in the middle on an issue, um, despite the fact that they are a part of the opposing party. And it's interesting, you know, when you look for common ground, your article uh, mentions that she's thinking about this idea of a congressional mom caucus. Yes. Yeah, so a, a big part of Takuda's campaign was the fact that she's a working mother and that she's going to be leaving her husband and two uh, school-age children uh, behind in the islands and traveling back and forth. Now, of course, um, other members uh, from Hawaii's delegation have done this as well, including Brian Schatz and Mark Takai. But, you know, she has formed a, a big part of her, her political identity, particularly in her run for Congress, as a working mother. And so she wants to team up with other working mothers in Congress to see if they can work together. I mean, it's all about coalition building yeah. and looking for paths forward. Well, we'll see how she does and see how long it takes her to get used to the cold. But thanks so much, Nick. Hey, thanks for having me. That was reporter Nick Ruby with today's Reality Check. Um, you can check on the stories on civilbeat.org. Today's a deadline for county election officials to cure problematic ballots. And in the process of double-checking, a funny thing happened. They discovered duplicate copies of a particular ballot on the Big Island and have flagged the case as possible voter fraud. It's in the hands of the state attorney general now. Such are the nuts and bolts of the election process. And today on The Long View, our uh, contributing editor, Neil Milner, joins us to give us some perspective post-election. Good morning. Good morning. So, yeah, you want to talk about election and butterflies? <laughs> I want to talk much more about butterflies than I do about the elections, and this is why. The results of the elections uh, gave me a sigh of relief. The story of the butterfly uh, inspired me. It inspired me because not because of the butterfly 
itself, butterflies tend to do that to people. It inspired me because it actually showed how government gets things done. And, and it's uh, the trouble with elections is that they suck all other kind of thought out of the room. It's all about promises. It's all about what's going to happen on the first day. It's all about policies we're going to adopt immediately, most of which don't really have much of an effect for long periods of time. Affordable housing here is a good example. And, uh, and opposed to that or alongside of that is the fact that in everyday social and political life, they're kind of concrete things that we get done. And in everyday kind of government life, there's all kinds of things that get done involving people you don't hear very much about. So this is about, this is uh, by Jocelyn, Jocelyn Moyer in uh, High Country. It's an outdoor magazine about the saving of the Fender's Blue Butterfly, which it turned, it, it's a, the habitat for that is somewhere west of Portland in the Willamette Valley, kind of between the coast and I-5, uh, the, the Portland area. This is going to be the first butterfly that went from endangered species, the first insect that went from endangered species off the endangered species list. What's good about this article to me and is that the lesson there, if you look at what the scientists and others, uh, how they define how they did this, it's really a useful formula to think about how you can get things done politically. And by you there, I mean individuals and groups as well as, you know, the suits and the big shots in Washington. So what they what they did real quick story the the fenders blue was pretty much just in one area the habitat got uh destroyed over time not so much in a man-made area it just got overgrown um and that made it hard for the them to get the food source that they need and it and it dropped the uh, and so this is about recovery and as one scientist put it and i think this is the important thing to know recovery is a product of science time and partnership that's an interesting way to think about how they succeeded and what the general lesson is here. Because if you think about all the battles we've had over science and all of the battles and all of the kind of way that time gets structured in weird ways and, and all the limits of partnership, that's certainly the story of the COVID policies. You think about it this way. One of the things that made this work was the fact, talk about science, the fact that there was useful, valid, powerful information out there that stated what the problem was, and there wasn't really any conflict over that information. Good Once information. They, good yeah. information. <laughs> good, solid information. Once they figured out it's as much about what the butterfly eats as anything else, and you have to build that up. So that's one lesson. Another lesson is time, and by time here, what I think is important to understand is this is a long-term project, but it isn't just about the amount of time. It's about the understanding that it's not just simply about adapting a, a, a sexy policy that says we're now saving the butterfly because of what we did today. That it's there's a long-term commitment here to monitoring toward refurbishing that people accept it and that is in fact going in so that the habitat occasionally gets threatened again. It gets overgrown. And so there's this whole process of, of doing it. There's a process of growing a food source that you can grow elsewhere. And partnership, of course, is something that's so important to a community. Um, and what's interesting in these partnerships is that groups that normally don't work together uh, and are often at odds, uh, including the, the government here, seem to find a way to work together. What you might call aspects of the deep state, the Fish and Wildlife Service figures out that in order to make this thing work, it has to get the cooperation of the Kalapua tribe and other Confederate tribes there because the Confederation tribes, because that's, it was their original practices and some of it is still their land they needed help from them, and they needed to help understand how you can do a kind of cultural example of burning, because that used to be burning the area used to be a way to preserve the body. You had much, most of this land, this habitat, is privately owned. So you have to have landowners 
cooperate with the government. Well, anybody who knows anything about land in the West knows that this is what you hear normally is serious conflict, you know, close to and sometimes violence. Here, the, 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 some of the important landowners figured out, we can benefit from this, we can help out. This is not a situation where government is screwing us over. It's a situation where we can get other things out of it. So they appeal to them? And they appeal to them. And, they, and so there is, there is no magic to this thing. It's hard work, and it's understanding the need to do something, and it really isn't about ideology at all. My guess is that the people, the, these ranchers, are probably Republicans or, or farmers. I don't remember what it was. So what I, what, what I think is important to learn about this is that there's two kinds of politics. There's the stuff that goes out out there that we hear about all the time, but really it affects us only indirectly in everyday life. It's important. You know, the war in Ukraine is important. It's not important in your everyday life as seeing whether your school is operating all right. So this is a kind of reminder formula of, of how you can do things uh, if you think about them in different ways. Um, and a lot of credit goes to a scientist who started this when she was in graduate school and then figured out if you really want to change things, you got to do it, uh, you know, in this kind of way. She probably was able to do it because her, she was totally bereft of any kind of ideological battles. Well, I guess it, and if you have the analogy of the butterfly in our democracy, yeah. right? So well, the, no, I think you're right. The, the, uh, without getting too metaphorical mm -hmm. about it, uh, I mean, I could talk in metaphors for hours. I was trained that way. But uh, it's, it's any kind of recovery here. Um, it, if you want to say about it in terms of democracy, it's the kind of concrete, everyday, extraordinarily important things that get done. Right. So do we care about the butterfly? Do we care about our democracy? How do we look for that good information and work together at it? Sure. There's a, I mean, it would be interesting to spend a lot more time with all these people to get more details, but they clearly had a way of bringing this about. It took a long time. It took hard work, but um, the butterfly seems to be saved, and there's a commitment to a process that will keep this going. It's not just passing the policy and forgetting about implementation. Okay, we've got a whole crop of lawmakers in D.C. this week, and uh, hopefully they can <laughs> work together and, let's and, say and that, play together nicely. Right. Well, let's say they're caterpillars, and maybe okay. they'll turn into butterflies. But this applies to citizens, too, yeah. if you want to you know, bring out your inner butterfly. Yeah, well, and, and care about something so that yeah. uh, you get out there and vote. Well, care about, well, don't get me started. Okay. This is not about voting. This is yeah, voting yeah. is a low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. This is about committing yourself to your community. Yeah. That's that's harder, and I would even argue push come the shove is more important than voting. All right. Well, thank you, Neil. Sure. We've been talking with our contributing editor Neil Milner about putting things in perspective. Look for links to the articles referenced today on our website, HawaiiPublicRadio.org. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Linda Yael Schiller, author of Modern Dreamwork and PTS Dreams. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about complex dreams and nightmares to work through difficult issues. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from S2BN, presenting Bonnie Raitt in concert with guest John Cruz at the Blaisdell on March 28th and at the Mac on March 31st. Tickets on Oahu at Ticketmaster.com and on Maui at MauiArts.org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, and we now go to this week's Manu Minute. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to an endangered native bird with a singular call and an unusual crest.
Koekoe are the largest honeycreepers remaining in Maui Nui and are just a spectacular bird. Measuring about seven inches from bill to tail, they're mostly shiny black, but their feathers are tipped in orange, silver, and white to give them a beautiful speckled appearance. They also have bright orange necks and a very unusual fluffy white crest on their forehead, which is where their English name, Crested Honeycreeper, comes from. Why they have this crest, no one really knows. One possibility is it helps attract the opposite sex, but another more likely possibility is it makes them better at dispersing pollen between the many flowers they visit throughout the day. This is important because akoekoe are nectarivores, meaning that nectar from a variety of native flowers is their main food source, though they spend most of their time sipping nectar from ohia lehua trees. Other nectarivores that compete for food with akoekoe include the orange-red iivi and the brick-red apapane. Being the biggest of the three, akoekoe are able to chase away the others from their favored foraging areas. Like many other Hawaiian birds, the name akoekoe may come from some of the many sounds that they make. If you use your imagination, sound a little bit like their name. Akoekoe once ranged throughout Maui and Molokai, but today are only found in a relatively small patch of wet forest high up on the side of Haleakala volcano. With less than 2,000 birds left, they're considered to be critically endangered and are a major focus of conservation efforts from a variety of groups, including the Maui Forest Bird Recovery Project. Like most of our remaining honeycreepers, Akoekoe are very susceptible to mosquito-transmitted avian malaria, and one recent study that used radio transmitters to track the movements of adults and juveniles found that while adults rarely leave the safety of their mosquito-free territories at high elevations, the juveniles travel widely across the landscape, including lower elevation forests that may have plenty of nectar resources but also have disease-carrying mosquitoes. This, plus the fact that akoekoe only have one or two babies per year, is a major reason why their populations continue to decline, despite there being plenty of forests left on Maui for them to live. Also, as temperatures continue to rise with global warming, these mosquitoes may invade the mosquito-free habitat at high elevations in akoekoe's last stronghold. Landscape-scale mosquito control may be our best hope at saving this iconic bird, and a new technique that uses naturally occurring bacteria, known as Wolbachia, to sterilize breeding mosquitoes may actually be implemented in the next few years. Hopefully, this will reduce or eliminate mosquito populations in a koekoe habitat before it's too late. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, offering nature tours on Hawaii Island with adventures including swimming in private waterfalls, Mauna Kea stargazing, and exploring active volcanoes. More at hawaii-forest.com. For today's backyard quiz, we remember King Kalakaua's birthday by visiting his Kona residence. Hulia Palace was built by John Adams Kuakini, the first royal governor of Hawaii Island, and was passed down through the family. King Kalakaua eventually bought and renamed it, using it as his summer home. By 1924, the property had fallen into disrepair and it could no longer be seen from Ali'i Drive. The territorial legislature then bought it and leased it to the group, the Daughters of Hawaii, who were committed to the preservation of Hawaiian culture. In 1973, the home was placed on the National Register of Historic Places. And when King Kalakaua lived there, he called it Hikulani Hale, which means Seventh Ruler's House. We had no winners today, but that was that's our quiz. And if you have an idea to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for HPR comes from An Evening with David Sedaris. The humorist, comedian, and author is coming to Hawaii Island, Kauai, Maui, and Oahu, February 11th to the 18th. Tickets at davidsedarishawaii.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Mars Cafe, we talk to Solstice Power, one of Elemental Accelerator's portfolio companies. To find out how their customer management software gained the attention of global Japanese conglomerate Mitsui and Company, that's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Island Community Health Center, providing medical, dental, and behavioral health care services island-wide. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org. New Zealand's film ministry has been leading the way for the last 30 years when it comes to telling indigenous stories on the big screen. During that time, Rena Owen has been one of the most recognizable Maori in the industry. She's played historical figures, characters in Star Wars, and everything in between. She's best, she is best known for the groundbreaking 1994 film, Once Were Warriors. You've got nothing I want. Our people, once were warriors. But not like you, Jake. They were people with mana, pride, people with spirit. If my spirit can survive living with you for 18 years, then I can survive anything. Maybe you taught me that. Owen was in Hawaii recently for the screening of the new film Fina at the Hawaii International Film Festival. It depicts the life of beloved Maori activist Fina Cooper, who was in her 80s when she led the nearly 700-mile Maori land march in 1975. It was a protest against the continued loss of Native lands. Owen plays Cooper in the film. The Conversations Russell Subiano caught up with the veteran actress to talk about the film and the legacy of New Zealand cinema. You've played a wide variety of characters in your career. Do you have a favorite one or one that really impacted you? Well, of, of course, it would have been Beth Hecke was the first that had the, the biggest impact on me personally and professionally playing that lead role in Once Were Warriors. And, and as an actor, we got the cherry on top of the cake. Mm -hmm. Usually an actor works their way slowly but surely up through the cake. We went straight to the cherry. I mean... And I naively thought every film I'd do would be another one for Warriors, and of course it's not. But I'm lucky that I have been able to go on and do sci-fi and horror and a lot of other genres. And in those decades, I tended to be cast in those projects because I was ethnically ambiguous. Mm -hmm. And I didn't come in a box, because I am biracial, Māori and Pākehā, Hauli, Caucasian. And so in the world of sci-fi, it really... George Lucas saw Polynesians as the face of the future, and hence he put five of us into the prequels in 2000. So, yeah, that that here. And then, of course, Tom Wee, because I had no idea of the world I was entering. I did not realize that Star Wars was a religion until, <laughs> I, went, until I went to a convention. And, of course, I was just blown away. And most recently, two things have had an enormous impact on me these past couple of years. One was having the privilege of portraying old Dame Fina Cooper at the age of 80 and 99. And of course, she is the most beloved Te Motu, mother of the nation, and of course became world famous with leading the land march in 1975. Mm -hmm. And the other role that's also up there in this last couple of years is Havina in Seth MacFarlane's show, The Orville. I got to do a scene with Dolly Parton <laughs> in this wonderful sci-fi world, which is very similar to Star Trek. So very impactful roles. And yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed. I'm blessed, you know. When we look back at Maori cinema and how it has grown in leaps and bounds since Once Were Warriors came out in 1994, I see films like Whale Rider, The Deadlands, Cousins, and then you look at how Taika Waititi has become a part of mainstream pop culture. 
What are your mm-hmm. thoughts on the evolution and the growth of Maori cinema? Well, that for me, once for worries, the thing that pleased me the most, just very briefly, I grew up as a young person, very creative, writing, acting, doing traditional Maori singing and dancing. So I knew as a rangatai, as a young person, that the stage was my place in the world and that's, that's what I wanted to do with my life. However, at the end of the 70s, being an actor was not an option for a little native girl. We had no role models. There were no brown faces on our TV screens or in our cinemas. So 15 years later, when Once Were Warriors came out, that was the aspect that pleased me the most is because that film told all our brown children around the world that they could be actors, they could be filmmakers, they could be writers, they could be directors. And, of course, we've gone on to actually absolutely do that, not just in cinema. I mean, we have Māori television. We have our own networks, and, and so do Pacifica. Pacific Islanders, it's just really... Once the Warriors opened the door, it educated a lot of people around the world that there was an Indigenous race in New Zealand and aspects of the Māori culture. It meant that a lot of uh, Māori, Polynesians, PIs, started going to drama schools, and as you say... You look at somebody like Taika, you know, who's come out of that. You know, that, that opened the door big time for myself, for Cliff Curtis, uh, for Temuera Morrison, for Lee Kamahori. And then, of course, 10 years later, Whale Rider with Keisha Castle Hughes is on a, an NCIS show. Actually, it's not NCIS, it's FBI. But, you know, you see more and more Pacifica, Polynesians everywhere. I mean, just look at all the shows that have been made in Hawaii right now. You got a lot of Polynesian talent in those shows right now being made in Hawaii and it has just expanded and that's what young people need to be able to see someone like young people would say to me, I saw my aunties and once were warriors, I saw myself as a kid and once were warriors, I saw that this film told me that I could be a filmmaker. So, you know, 26 years onwards, Warriors came out in 1994, when you look back at it, we made that movie on $1.2 million, very, very low budget, and we only had 34 days, and we had limited celluloid because we were shooting on film. And that little movie made Time Magazine's top 10 list of the best films in the right. world. Right. That was an extraordinary uh, achievement, and what I learned with Warriors and then 10 years later, Whale Rider, it all comes down to distribution. A distributor can make or break a good movie. And your movies can be amazing, but unless you run a campaign and it's distributed, you can take it all the way to the Oscars. And that's what Bob Burney did with Wow Rider. He had a very clever strategy. And that's what's still needed in this day and age is we can make these good films, but you need to have distribution of it. So people need to see it. They need to see it in order to vote. And, and now, hey, of course... This is a little bit of a bagging, right? But here I am, you know, now, 35 years later, I'm actually an Academy member. So I'm back in L.A. and I'm going to a lot of screenings and I get to vote on these movies and I get to learn more about how the machine works. And I'm also on the SAG nominating committee this year. So it's a it's a full season. I've seen a lot of, lot of great movies, you know, and documentaries and TV. It's just... The best part is, is like we're back in the cinema. You know, we're back at a film festival, and I'm so grateful to Hiss and the Vilsec Foundation for having me in Hawaii, where I was able to be a Vilsec participant as a filmmaker in all their events, and be able to present Fina the film to its American debut in Hawaii, and then of course to be able to have the enormous honour of being there at the awards at the gala at Sunday to receive the Pacifica Award for Best Feature Film. I mean, wow. Yeah, that's, that's huge. That's huge. It, it must, is huge. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what one of the last things I said in my speech, because I, I hadn't anticipated it, so I didn't have anything prepared. <laughs> but I think that was one of the last lines I said. I said, this is a big deal for Aotearoa New Zealand. Turning to your film, Fina, you play Fina when she's 80 years old and when she led a nearly 700-mile march across part of Aotearoa. Many perceive Maori as having a warrior culture, but Fina chose a more passive form of protest Absolutely. to oppose the further loss of Maori land. 
Why do you think she made that decision? It's it's also why they chose her. This Fina, her background, like me, is a hapa girl. On her father's side, her grandfather was uh, white American and the mother was Maori. So Fina's father taught her business and taught her about the value of money. And then, of course, on her mother's side, Fina's mother was Maori. But she grew up with this knowledge and with this training from her father, and she was clever. And so he sent her to be educated, and he didn't have the money to pay for the education, but the Minister of Native Affairs at the time saw her potential, so they paid for her education. And when she came back as an educated young woman to the north, back to Tangaru, she went teaching briefly, but she didn't like teaching. She wanted more business. So she ended up working in the local store owned by a Howley British man. She ended up buying that store off him and running this very successful business. And she was actually the, the biggest importer and exporter in the north. So she was damn clever. She had a lot of business savvy, and she ran a very successful business, which is why a few years after that, she had who was the new Minister of Native Affairs, unlike the movie, he travelled to the rural areas and hung out with the communities to see who in the community had two things, respect in the communities, but secondly, business. Good at business and good with money. And that's how he chose Fina for Pangaru, the Pangaru area. And so Fina had, was adept and very skilled in both worlds. And like me, being a hapa girl, we had best of both worlds. And the thing I have most in common with Fina, besides growing up with in Catholic faith, is that we're bridges between both worlds. We're a product of both worlds. And her most famous saying was kotahitata, kotahitata, one people, Māori and Pākehā, putting their minds together to create for the good of the people. It was always about the good of the people. But she was never a divider. She was a, a unifier. She fought for the people. It didn't matter. She really was one of those OGs, the true rainbow dinosaur. She embraced everybody. But of course, first and foremost, like me, her passion were for her own community, were for her people. But she knew in order to get what she wanted, she wasn't going to get it if the march was angry or if the march was violent. The door just gets shut. She knew how to manipulate and utilize the system because she'd worked within it and had been very, very successful as a businesswoman, as a Māori leader, which is why many years later she was in retirement when the young Te came to approach her to lead because they knew people would listen to her. It was incredibly effective, and if I'm to do something like that in my future, I'd certainly take a leaf out of her book. Peaceful marches go a long way, and also to aroha, like aloha was a very big component. Yeah, it was pretty incredible what she did, and, and of course it is to this day the thing she would always be most, most renowned for is for that land march. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Anytime, my friend, anytime. That was Maui actress Arena Owen talking with HBR's Russell Subiano. Her new film, Fina, won the Pacific Award at the at this year's Hawaii International Film Festival and will screen at the Hilo Palace Theater tomorrow night at 7 p.m. We'll have links to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. We now leave you with the trailer for Fina. I used to come here when I was a child. They owned all the land around here, as far as you could see. The place feels like it's done. There's no jobs. Sorry, Finna. I know things are difficult for you right now. Our land sold from under us. Our culture scattered in the dust. Fina, if things are to change, we must change them. I'm not sure I am one of those people. No one hears us fire, but when you speak, people listen. 
you could make our voices heard. If we can get enough of us together, we have a real chance of solving our problems. We must educate our women. This is how you ruffle feathers, Finna. This is how we will bring hope back to our people. Let's get to work. We women counter opposition of every kind. Rise above it. Strength comes from being united. They're here. They've come to join us. We Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, providing comprehensive health care open to all. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org. We have to go now, but up tomorrow we highlight an office whose mission is to curb illicit drugs in the islands. Did you know we're considered a high-intensity drug trafficking area? Got a fentanyl story to share? Color Talk Back Line, 808-792-8217. Find all of our archive shows online at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for the conversation.